Hello and welcome to another episode of Romaniacs, the podcast that metaphorically waves an EU flag at the last night of the proms. Every week we listen to the mood music of Brexit Britain and find more often than not that it's a sad trombone. I'm Dorian Linsky and this week we'll be discussing the parliamentary shenanigans behind the legislation formerly known as the Great Repeal Bill. On Monday night, the EU withdrawal bill passed its second reading in the Commons with unanimous Tory support and the help of seven Labour backbenchers who defied the whip. Theresa May said it offered certainty and clarity, while Labour called it an affront to parliamentary democracy. But which is it? Let's find out. We'll also be weighing up the latest economic news and asking whether anything that annoys Nigel Farage can be a bad thing. And we'll be having an extended chat with this week's special guest. We'll meet him in a minute, but first let's say hello to the regulars. Peter Collins is a former business editor of The Economist and ex-BBC, and now he's a rogue Brexitologist. At the weekend, we went on the People's March for Europe together. That was a good day out, wasn't it? It was. A splendid time was guaranteed for all, except apart from David Davis and Liam Fox and all that rebel, of course. The sky was blue, and I'm sure I saw some yellow stars in it, so somebody up there is sending us a message. (laughs) (laughs) And he couldn't be with us on Saturday, but he's here when it counts. It's Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk, and author of Brexit, What the Hell Happens Now? Hi, Ian. Uh, I hear you've been moonlighting on Guardian Politics Weekly. Have you burned through all your best material? (laughs) Wow, wow. this is like, you've set a trap for me here. I see how that Um, works. Have you got anything left in the tank? (laughs) No, you know what? I can still find a little bit more indignation to take me through. And you've just published a piece about soft Brexit that took six actual weeks. You know, it might have even taken longer. That was the most hellish, unspeakable thing. You're talking to all these guys that sort of wrote EEA agreements and sat around, you know, at the top of the after court and they constantly talk in this incredibly bizarre way about conversations between courts and like the culture in a thing and you really have to talk to an awful lot of them before you have any idea what the hell it is that they're properly talking about in any practical sense. So when I finally got this thing done and out there, it was just the greatest relief that I would never again, well at least for not another couple of weeks, have to delve into <laughs> any of this material. And we're delighted to welcome Nick Cohen. He's a veteran columnist for The Observer and Spectator, author of books such as What's Left and You Can't Read This Book and Scourge of Brexit Delusions. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's a great pleasure. And honour, I, I should say. <laughs> I'm delighted. We're, we're honoured too. We'll be talking at length. Uh, with Nick later. Before we get to the news, here's Peter with some important information. Yes, don't forget that Romaniacs now has its own YouTube channel where you can find the complete show every week, plus the occasional fun-sized titbit. Go to YouTube and search for Romaniacs and please subscribe as well. Apple users, please subscribe via the iPhone Podcasts app or iTunes and do your bit by leaving us a nice review and star rating. Every single one helps us to reach more people. We currently have well over 100 five-star reviews but we'd like to have more. For example, Sister Calf says, I'm so grateful this podcast exists, being the listening highlight of my week. I've learned many things, disagreed with some ideas, probably Ian's, and positions taken. <laughs> and, hooti- and, <laughs> and Hooty Door cheered out loud often. Thank you, Romaniacs team. Keep going. A candle in the dark. Well, we like Sister Calf. On our trusty webs- website, you can find all sorts of links to Romaniacs, including on Spotify, Acast, iTunes and Stitcher. I don't know what some of these are, but they're very important because they're ways to get the podcast. Anyway, go to romaniacs.com. Brilliant. We're, we're going to just keep adding some made up ones. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I won't notice. <laughs> right. Bring me my bow of burning news. On Monday night, the EU withdrawal bill passed its second reading by 326 votes to 290. The bill overturns the 1972 European Communities Act, which took the UK into what was then the European Economic Community, and converts all existing EU laws into UK law to avoid any black holes on legislation on Brexit Day. Keir Starmer called it a naked power grab by the government, and Tom Brake, the Lib Dem Brexit spokesman, called it a dark day for the mother of parliaments. So the point is that this power grab refers to the so-called Henry VIII powers. So the the bill's perhaps most controversial aspect is it gives the government all these sweeping powers to make all sorts of changes to all sorts of laws using what are called statutory instruments, essentially ministries I- issuing changes to the law with pretty pretty much minimal uh, scrutiny by parliament. Um, they've, they've become known as Henry VIII powers over the over the years, although so far the government's Brexit performance has been more like Ethelred the Unready. There was no great Tory rebellion, as you said, but uh, quite a lot of Conservatives as well as opposition MPs said they're determined now to force through quite significant changes as the bill goes into committee stage, because it's an important bill. The committee it goes through to have everything picked over is the, a committee of the whole House. Um, so there'll, there'll be plenty of opportunity for, 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 for um, amendments. Two, interestingly, two Conservatives 
Conservative ex-ministers, uh, Dominic Grieve, who is, of course, a, rem- a known Remainer, and John Penrose, who is a member of that um, pro-Brexit European research group, uh, got together to propose an amendment that would create a joint committee of the, ha- uh, the Houses of uh, Commons and Lords to go through all these statutory instruments and basically say, no, we're having a proper debate on this one, uh, which seems to me to make a, a lot of sense. So was this week's vote ever close or was it inevitable? We've talked before, you know, when will we find a Tory spine, basically, but they they don't seem to be out there. We do hear the talk, you know, you hear Subri talks very very eloquently, Grieve talks very eloquently, out it comes, out it comes. When it comes down to the votes, they do not perform. Now, and that's not just on the repeal, but you, you could potentially say, look, we've got to get it through to the stage where we've got amendments, you know, so we'll get it through to committee stage, we'll chuck in the amendments, and that was clearly what they did. They started queuing up afterwards, chucking this stuff in. The clear idea is just to, you know, take it into an alleyway somewhere and just start slicing it up, slicing it up, and seeing what you can do with it, as the Lords will continue, I imagine, more effectively than MPs. But last night, this is recorded on Wednesday again, last night was a separate but related initiative, which was really about stacking the odds in the Conservatives' government's favour, as if they had a majority in the standing the, the selection committee, which will go to the standing committee, which all sounds very dry, but is essentially the mechanisms by which legislation is evaluated. And on that, again, there was no Tory rebellion. So at the time, you have to reach the point where you're like, well, they talk and they talk and they talk. The supposed Remainers in the Tory party, supposed soft Brexiters, supposed constitutionalists who are all so concerned about these sudden executive power grabs. But when the moment comes for them to do something, I see absolutely nothing from the Tory benches whatsoever. Can I make a point that isn't being made yet because you know, we're still moving into this swamp? When it won't just be ministers on their own won't just be drawing up laws which have the force of acts of parliament. I mean, this is a bit more than the old Henry VIII powers. We saw they specifically say in the bill we can actually behave as if we are parliament, which is extraordinary. Mm. Um, they will be lobbied. They'll be lobbied very, very hard, and rightly so. You know, if you're a farmer, if you're working in manufacturing, if you're working in finance or media, you've got all these regulations suddenly affecting you. Obviously, you want to lobby. But we're then going to have the, the um, wholly uh, execrable situation, in my mind, where lobbyists will be inf- influencing policy in secret, because these will be private meetings, obviously, whereas Parliament can't discuss them in public. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's it, the kind of the taking back control for Parliament thing seems to have uh, gone out the window. It's almost like these people the don't have like, the courage yeah. of their convictions in some way. And what happened with the, with the seven Labour rebels, which included uh, John Mann, Dennis Skinner, our old friend Kate Hoey... To be fair, most of them are the sort of tried and tested proper Brexiters. They're proper Eurosceptics. There's an awful lot of, you know, hanging back and not voting at all by the Caroline Flints of the world who just feel that they can't explain to their constituents about freedom of movement and the single market. So that's one way of doing it. The other way was a sort of Dennis Skinner way. He sort of wrote an article saying, well, look, I've been doing this my whole life. You know, I've always been going into that lobby when it comes to the EU. And to to be fair... He has actually been doing that his whole life. But that does not extend to the idea of him, you know, as this sort of tried and tested defender of the workers, suddenly going to the Tory party, you get to enact whatever anti-worker legislation you want without any debate in Parliament. So that seems to me either that he is so afraid of, you know, of his own supporters thinking that he's being insufficiently protective of Brexit or that he has, you know, he's taken the pill and he, he has taken that mania of supporting the will of the people and that this bill somehow does that. This bill has nothing to do with implementing Brexit. It is to do with how you implement Brexit. And the manner that they have chosen to do it is the manner that, by some coincidence, gives them the maximum degree of power imaginable. To go back to what Ian was saying about the spinalness of the Tory Remainers, the fact you've got all these red Tories like Dennis Skinner, who's so nice calling a red Tory, really, isn't <laughs> um, uh, uh, um, means, that, means that you will need a bigger rebellion on the Conservative benches to overcome those Labour MPs who are pro-Brexit, like Skinner and Hoey, and those who are too scared of having an argument with their constituents, like Flint and the rest of them. In other words, you, it's not just, despite the minor, effectively Tories are a minority government, you, you're still, it can't just be one or two Tory MPs rebelling to, to, to threaten them. It's going to have to be 20, 20 plus other fours. Yeah. Well, I mean, yesterday, I mean, the result, well, so yesterday doesn't quite count because obviously you had, you had a, a firmer line, but you'd have needed, I suppose, 11 Tory rebellions mm. in order to get an over. And that's what this it came down Tuesday to. This is Tuesday night we're talking about. Be, yeah. So this is Tuesday night on the committee vote, which yeah. is obviously slightly different because it's disconnected from, yeah. from Brexit. Uh, you know, you're, I think you're quite right. We look, we've got to be looking at sort of 20, 25 Tory rebels. I, I can't see the numbers for that 
at the moment. I just don't see where they'd come from. There seems to be such little evidence oh, of, of, of spines out there. And what amendment should be re- we be rooting for? The obvious one that um, Grieve and Penrose, which sounds like a brand of gentlemen's luxury <laughs> grooming product, <laughs> leave that as available at all branches of John Lewis. Uh, uh, but that, that's a very good idea that, you know, that, that a committee is, is empowered to say, sorry, we're going through all these statutory instruments. This one needs debate. That one's a minor technicality. You can have that one. But this one needs debate. And they should, that, that's the obvious one, it seems to me. There's always this danger of look, what do they often try to do with um, sort of protections on statutory instruments is to drive it towards delegation legislation committee which you know among other facets has the power by its mere name to send people to sleep and stop them from paying attention but really you know it sounds like that adds a degree of scrutiny but it doesn't because at the end those delegated legislation committees which by the way by virtue of the vote on tuesday the government will be able to stack with mps on their side of the house oh, quite. Mm. yeah even then doesn't actually have a vote on the final terms it only gets to evaluate the statutory instrument by whether it is rational in law not by its effect and it has no veto on it so there's always this way where they and they always try to say you know parliament will be in control of these measures but when you actually look at what it involves in plain terms and get rid of all the obscure and arcane language what you find is just utter utter toothlessness in the constitutional arrangements for how these things are evaluated so they will relentlessly try to fob us off and i predict an awful lot of this because really that bill reads like the opening bargaining statement from the government they overshot as much as they could basically sort of as nick said just basically said just just give us all the powers including with with the insanely pernicious clause nine which not only gives the powers but then says we can use the powers on this bill so any safeguard they put in that bill unless clause nine is is taken out is completely irrelevant because the powers can be used to wipe out the safeguards in the bill which proposed them in the first place so they will now come up with all these solutions say there'll be more but i would advise to look very closely at the committees that they suggest and what they entail because most of the time they're not worth the paper that they're written on and um, what about the intervention by uh, the ever-popular Tony Blair and Lord Adonis, <laughs> suggesting that a possible compromise in which France and Germany offer Britain prospect of staying in the EU, but with stricter immigration controls. So it's sort of, you know, it's basically going, look, this was a vote about immigration and mm. freedom of movement. And if we can get concessions there, maybe we don't have to do all the other stuff. I may have to ask the audience to retreat to a safe space before I say this. Um, But Blair has a point. Um, um, His argument has always been, and the argument of a lot of people who actually understand diplomacy, understand the world, uh, unlike the government, which has virtually one reason our diplomats are in such a mess, is diplomats don't just operate on their own. They talk to ministers and say, it's okay, I know so-and-so, he's Prime Minister of Sweden, or I know Macron of France, so we can, we, we're friends, we can cut a deal. None of that, there are no contacts. And Blair, the point has always been made is, after the referendum, what May ought to have done is, first of all, just gone to the EU and said, right, we've had this, immigration is a massive issue, for good reason, can I say, you know, we've had you know, one of the biggest immigration uh, uh, movement of people into Britain in our history. What can you give us? You know, you thought Cameron was bluffing or he was going to win anyway. It didn't matter. What can you give us? Um, I think it might be too late now. But, I mean, that, of the many, many diplomatic... What's this horrible American word? We've got now missteps. You heard missteps. Yeah. It's such a genteel word. Oh, the politician missteps. If he's a, a dainty lady falling <laughs> off her heels. Of the, of the many total utter cock-ups we've had since the referendum, that has been one of the biggest. This is failure to just say, throw it back to the EU and say, look, we don't want to leave. People mm. still want the single market. But you've got to give on this. C- can you help? And then if they say no, then say, OK, we'll move on from there. It's, it's not such a bad idea from Blair. Okay, listeners, you can leave your safe place now. The Blair segment is over. So, I mean, I, I struggle with him I mean, much more than you, and I obviously struggle much more with the, with the immigration stuff. I don't want to hear any of that stuff. I, I have to say, strategically, I think it's really useful that there is a wing of Remain that is talking in the terms that Blair is talking. And, and, and can, you could almost define the effectiveness of it by how much I don't like fucking hearing it. Because as soon as it comes out, you're like, oh, this is just this, this dreadful old nativist nonsense. And it's describing a problem which I do not think exists in this country. And yet, that, that conversation has to be taking place on some wing of the movement. And I think on another well, one... Well, he, he's changed because... When was it? It was January. Before he re-emerged on the public scene because mm. of all of this, he called lots of people in, including me, for a chat. And I said, surely 
the Blairite thing to do at the moment is to compromise on freedom of movement. And he went, no, Nick, no, 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 no. We've got to have freedom of movement. So he's moved, you know, he's moved from your position, if you like, of saying, you know, this is just ridiculous. You, you know, people don't understand what, you know, what, what problems are and half these problems are inventions and fantasies. Mm. So he's saying, well, actually, I think if you're going to get any kind of, we're going to save something from this wreckage, you've, you've got to take this on. You've got to have an offer. And, and yeah, I, yeah. So I see that part. This is with the the paper was actually quite interesting and subtle and had some quite interesting ideas in it more I think than than the press really gave it than, than the well, sort of coverage acknowledged. Most of it is probably possible within the EU. Some of it I don't think is. So the, the core thing, the first thing, is that you can just say that people need to register within three months, and if you don't have a job offer or the means to sustain yourself after six, you've got to go. Now European countries do this all over the place. Germany does it. Denmark does it. Norway does it. In, in, in EFTA. This is something that can be done. The other office that he was talking about, which is sort of, you know, allowing discrimination on the, on the basis of sort of university provision or jobs, that's uh, not quite so clear whether that can be no. done. And actually, I mean, Switzerland have tried and they've got this watered down sort of version. But even that alone shows that a conversation about that can take place within the EU. So, again, possible, maybe possible. It does make me uncomfortable. But I do see that there is a strategic advantage to having someone making that case. Do you and Peter think that the well has been so poisoned now that conversations that could have happened... With the EU, with the I, EU yeah, about a year ago. That's, that's, it, it seems to me, yes, is, is, the, is the, the short answer. But I guess if... I don't know. If, if, let, let's imagine a miracle that um, Theresa May decides to go... Um, I don't know. It won't be Kenneth Clark, unfortunately, in her place. But let's suppose it's somebody who de- decides, the new prime minister, right, we're going to stop being... You know, calling names across the water at the Europeans. Let's try to be constructive in the talks, and then maybe the other side thinks actually we've got a change here. That's the only things I can think of that would that would unpoison the well right now. There are articles in the EEA agreement. I think it's oh god, fuck my life. I think it's one one two to one one three. Which the Guardian uh, Politics Weekly would accept that either. Um, it's Ian Uncut. <laughs> so I, I think I think. It is one one two and one one three, um, but correct me if I'm wrong. Um, which basically allow you to sort of have some sort of emergency break on any aspect of the agreement. Now, Cameron tried to bring this stuff up in his negotiations, and they were like, "Well, you don't need it because you can't demonstrate that there's particular strain on your public services. You can't demonstrate this particular strain on your economy for the simple fact that there wasn't." Now, the question then becomes: If, assuming we went for some kind of soft Brexit, you know, in the EA. Are they going to have a strict legal interpretation of, of, of that article? Or actually, would they have possibly have a more political, you know, relaxed approach going, well, actually, you want this to happen. We can kind of make this happen. Let's see what we can offer you and have a little bit of horse trading there. Now, I suspect that might be possible, that more political attitude towards it, if the British team had a more constructive, positive attempt to try and create something that they were aiming for. But right now, when it's just this sort of nativist shit-throwing, then obviously the Europeans are going are to keep back on that very strict legal interpretation. Whether a difference you know, in the British approach would change things is yet to be seen, because, of course, there is no sign of a change in the British approach. Moving on, uh, Peter has some economic news. Yes, and it's great. Oh uh, well, uh, well, <laughs> two things. First of all, uh, the latest trade figures show Britain's trade tef- deficit going up, getting worse in the most recent quarter. That's despite this big fall in the pound that was supposed to have boosted our exports. The second thing is a study by the Institute of Government, which goes through all the horrors that are awaiting British businesses if we leave the customs union. The thing that jumped out to the headlines was the fact that just the extra cost of filling out customs declarations could easily top £4 billion a year. Then on top of that, there's all the other stuff that uh, it gets listed in this report that could um, cost businesses a lot of money. Um, you know, when when lorries are uh, halfway up the M1, uh, queuing to get in and out of Dover, all those orders that will be lost, all the perishable goods that will perish, all the costs of hiring the extra staff to deal with the customs inspections. We don't even know, of course. We can't, they, they didn't try. We can't even put a cost on all of that stuff because we don't know what our eventual trade arrangements... I think I can put a cost on it. Go on. It'll all add up to 350 million a week. <laughs> well, indeed, and I have not? more authority for saying that than bloody Boris Johnson did. Yeah, it, sounds, it sounds perfectly plausible, to pro- although it'll probably be 350 million a day, more like it. Well, a transition period 
help? Well, it depends what you do in the transition period. We're talking about two or three years. And you remember that the, the government is set it already setting up this whizzy new uh, customs computer system that they started on pre-Brexit to basically make the existing trade with the non-EU countries uh, a lot easier for businesses. That is looking like it's in trouble, like all big government IT projects. They're depending on an even whizzier version, which they conjured out of nowhere in the, one of their recent papers, that will make everything possible to trade with the EU smoothly and so on. So where is this computer system? It's not going to appear in two years or three years, maybe in 10, but is anybody talking about a 10-year transition? Mm. I was having dinner with some trade negotiators the other day, and they were... I mean, literally laughing at the, the position papers were the butt of every joke, those who had read it. I mean, you, you couldn't, they couldn't have been more abject scorn in their approach to the stuff that was being suggested. Of course, all, especially all the stuff about having some kind of customs membership where we would impose one level and then we track goods to the thing. They're literally, literally falling over themselves laughing at dinner tables and these, over these, these ideas. British or EU trading? No, these, are, these guys are mostly sort of freelancers, so they've worked for the EU, right. who they had very little good things to say about. You know, it's not as if they enjoy doing trade deals with the EU. Maybe they're just misanthropes. Maybe. Well, I mean, to, to be fair, well, I'm, sure I'm, sure I'm sure they think of themselves as gunslingers roaming the world, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Australia one day, you know. Canberra, you know, Canada the next. If only they were in charge, yeah. everything would be great. They actually had a good, they had a good saying for um, what it was like negotiating on behalf of the EU in a trade deal, which is imagine being in a car with 28 mothers-in-laws in the back seat and they've all got their own, <laughs> they've all got their own break. And so, you know, obviously that, that is how it, I guess it feels for them. But the other side of that is that that is a democratic structure, a rule-based structure in which to do this stuff, unlike the horse trading bilateral stuff that we will see via Donald Trump. But nevertheless, you know, on the customs stuff, it was clear from very early on, the reports that came out during the referendum and immediately afterwards said billions and billions of pounds a year. And most of that isn't really tariffs. Most of that is country of origin. If you're BMW, right, and you've got to pay, you've got to charge an extra 10% on the product, it doesn't really matter. You're selling a BMW. Most people that buy a BMW could, could handle another 10%. But the point where you have all of these extensive bureaucratic requirements that change the fundamental way that you operate and what you need to show, you have to show where the origin comes from for every component part of a product like a car. That is a completely different kettle of fish and something that really clogs up your economy in a way that you simply can't get rid of. We know it's absolutely disastrous. They keep on pushing towards it. I can't see any way out. And in fact, some people in Brussels think it's already too late on the customs union stuff because you've got to leave the customs union in order to rejoin. At whichever way we do it, they'd need a bespoke customs arrangement for us to fit in. It looks absolutely horrific and it's very hard to see how we're going to avoid it. No wonder you enjoyed hanging out with those trade negotiators. The sheer fucking glamour of it. <laughs> Just moaning on. <laughs> Country of origin. <laughs> Finally, the last night of the proms, traditionally the most Brexity night of the year, took a surprising turn after Remainers handed out 7,000 free EU flags, almost three times as many as last year. TV personality Nigel Farage, who had promised a counterattack of Union Jacks but failed to deliver flag wars, was predictably disgusted. And if Nigel's sad, then we're happy. <laughs> now, Nick, I'm sure I saw uh, a tweet from you a few weeks ago about something else, to the effect that the culture wars ruin everything they touch. Yeah. And that on size. Is this just, is this a sort of special case because it is inherently sort of, it has become a political event and an event about nationalism? Well, people used to say about the English culture, I'm quite specifically talking about England here, not confusing England and Britain. English nationalism was low-key, it was tolerant, it was accepting. Last night of the proms was soft and gentle, not armies marching down streets, goose-stepping or tanks parading in Red Square or North Korea, nothing like that at all. Um, and it was all a bit of a joke. Now that, as I said the other day, is in itself a nationalist post. We are so self-confident, we are so relaxed, we are so cool, we don't even have to do all this stuff other countries have to do. But on the other hand, it was a nice thing about England, uh, something worth defending. At the proms for years and years and years, they've had, you know, the singer singing Rule Britannia could be from Germany or France or Finland or wherever, as a conductor could. You could wave any flag you wanted. Now, because of Brexit, just as it's poisoning so much else, this rather gentle half tongue-in-cheek event, very English event, really, not British. It's suddenly, well, there's a culture war around it. 
on both sides. You know, the people screaming about it are upset that there were so many EU flags. And it, it does show how culture wars poison. That something as, you know, just a bit of fun, really, uh, last night of proms suddenly becomes politicised. What culture war means, in effect, is the everyday becomes politicised. You have to take a position on things you never thought you had to take a position on before. And that is not for the good. And we well, we had that with with Big Ben recently oh, as yeah. well. That suddenly, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I just stopped bloody caring about that problem. When the whole what was it, Andrea Ledson and Big Ben? I thought, do I go into this? You know, realistically, at my age, how many years have I got left? How many great novels and films have I not read or seen? Let's just leave this one. I started reading a. I mean, these very alarming phrases, but I don't know whether people re- realise how alarming they sound. That Tim Montgomery, I think this morning, tweeted that 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 uh, BBC had an item, I think, on the Today programme that was sort of about the implications of Brexit. And Tim Montgomery said, well, it's starting to sound unpatriotic. Yeah, but as if journalists you, Dorian, were meant to be patriotic. Dor- no, 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 no. Dorian, you're going to get, get used to that. By God, get used to that. As this mess builds up, as uh, real wages fall, as um, all the promises that 17.4 million people voted for last year turn out to be a pack of bloody lies, they are going to have to come back and say, anyone pointing this out, anyone saying how, as I think the BBC were this morning, how jobs are going overseas, or was it Paris coming to London saying, come work here, you, know, you, can, still, you can still be in the EU, you are stabbing your country in the back. You are lacking in patriotism. It, it, as I said the other day, patriotism will be the first resource of the scoundrels. It's all they've got left to turn, to turn everyone... That is the 16 million who people, people who voted made, and you know people who voted leave in good faith and suddenly realise they're sold a pile of shit. Turn them all into traitors. Say if you do that. Now this is far more than the cultural. This is this is incredibly dangerous. It is it, to say that half the country is treasonable. That's language not of cultural. That's language of civil war. Mm-hmm. And it is. It says so much about people like Montgomery that they're prepared to use that. Well, you made the point in a ethic column, I think, recently that the riposte to all of this is that if we didn't care about the country, we'd just sit back and let it go to pot. It's the fact that we do care about the country well, that we're making a fuss and saying we shouldn't be doing all this. Yeah. But, the, but there's such a, an effort to, to sort of own, obviously to own Britishness for a particular political side. And in this case, Farage was trying to own music and the ghost of Beethoven. And he was going, as for this airy-fairy music crosses all borders nonsense, music is also an important part of national symbolism in every part of the world. I mean, which it is, but, like, both and. And then he goes, I'm sure if Beethoven were alive today, and as one of the world's foremost Beethoven scholars, he'd know. (laughs) He would be horrified to learn that Ode to Joy was being hijacked by a band of crooks in Brussels. And you get these kind of ridiculous things. You see it on the, you know, I mean, God, you see it with like Orwell all the time. Well, I think Orwell would definitely, definitely agree with me, says somebody on the alt right, you know. And I, I think there is a sense of a kind of a sickening of the culture that that it's not just uh, like you were saying, really, that 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 that's so much to do with the EU. It used to be a specialist interest. It used to be. I remember it was the most boring part of my A level politics course, mm. you know, and it was sort of. You know, it's glad somebody was thinking about this, but you didn't have to be thinking about it all yeah. the time. And now, in parallel to to how Americans, I think, feel about Trump, is that it just poisons everything. Yeah, so Dor- every single argument is framed through this. Well, but Dorian, the way to fight back, and this is a problem for a section of the English intelligentsia, I would say, uh, but the way to fight back is to reclaim the flag, is to reclaim patriotism, to say, what the hell is patriotic? about throwing people on the soul. What the hell is patriotic about tearing up our European alliance at the very moment that dangerously unstable presence of the United States is the alternative? What is unpatriotic about making the country poorer? What is patriotic? What is unpatriotic about you know, going ahead with a, with a, a decision that will leave, lead to higher taxation and poorer public services? Yeah, that, that's not patriotism. Yeah, it's because, as Peter said, it's... We don't hate our country. It's because we care about the con- our country that we are so angry about the complete mess you're making of it. Now, you write a column for, as well as the Observer column, you write a column for The Spectator, which, uh, where I'd imagine on this issue, the readership and you are not always hand in hand. Do you, do you read your comments? 
Uh, no. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, 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 no, 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 no serious there journalist reads their question. columns. <laughs> no journalist reads their columns. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, the Guardian, the Guardian people in a way are just as bad as spectators. When young, young journalists come to work on the Guardian Observer, they, the first week they normally end up in tears. I said, why are you crying? Have we read the comments? Said, oh, for goodness sake, the first rule of journalism, journalism is never read the comments. You know, you just form an entirely false picture of the reader who actually overwhelmingly intelligent and nice because a few um, people of doubtful mental stability, I think I can put it like that, uh, just monopolise the comments. I've, I have read some of them. Have you? Yeah, some of them are... Poor fellow. Some of them are quite... They're quite cross. I suppose that you do feel, and I see it a lot on Twitter as well, this, like, tremendous rage coming from what is technically the winning side. What does this sort of rage sort of tell us about, I suppose, the kind of mindset of the Brexit camp and where that might lead? Well, I find it very revealing. For the first reason, they ought to be happy. They've won. Uh, They've got what they wanted. Why aren't they happy? Uh, Well, the first reason is some part of them must understand that this is going to go down as one of the great lies that was sold to the British public. Uh, that what they... Fo- and maybe sold to them, maybe they were fooled too. Some part of them knows it's not going to work. And second, to go back to your earlier point, is in a funny way, the Brexit vote for at least some people wasn't really about the EU. It was about a wider cultural war, about the way the country's changing... Um, about um, liberalism, social liberalism, sexual morals, different white faces not dominating every street, on and on, on and on it goes. And um, so they can never be happy. They can never be satisfied. Even when they win, they're still losing. And that's where, and that's where the anger comes from too. And like you were saying earlier, there, there is this danger, therefore, of a kind of, uh, if anything goes wrong... Of this sort of of a stab in the back myth. Yes, I mean they say, can't blame themselves. So yeah. I, I've been saying it from from the start because, and you know, it's easy to just pick on Nigel Farage, but you know, it wasn't just Nigel Farage. It was it was Boris Johnson. It was David Davis. It was Michael Gove. It was the Daily Telegraph as well as the Daily Mail. In other words, supposedly mainstream conservatives who did not think this through. That's the kindest... Let's say they lied, OK? They didn't think through... Because they had thought this through, they wouldn't have done it. If they had thought through the consequences of Brexit, they wouldn't have done it. So what happens when reality bites? Do all those people hold up their hands and say, oh, dear, I'm really sorry, I got this totally wrong. Uh, actually, we should probably just stay. There is a huge opening because the very complexity of Brexit will lead to massive disappointments. Because what they said would be over in, you know, they, they talked it could be over in a few months. You still see people interviews on the TV saying, oh, I thought we'd left already. You go, what? <laughs> Do you not read Ian Dunn? This is going to take a decade. This is going <laughs> to suck all the oxygen from the room. The great problems and the many problems facing our country, 99% of them have nothing to do with Brexit. They will not be addressed. Because all the energy, the entire civil service will be trying to make this clapped out vehicle run. And as that disappointment builds and the disillusion builds, instead of the people responsible holding up their hands and missing said, there's a huge possibility for saying, well, the elite, well, the establishment, establishing the back, well, the BBC ran a story that was unpatriotic. It's the BBC's fault. I think there is a market there. I think if Johnson, who clearly is being briefed against by all his colleagues, not just his opponents... If Johnson wants to confirm the worst opinion everyone else has of him, and I think he does, if he wanted to spin out of the government and launch a hard Brexit attack, the people have been afraid, the establishment of her establishment, that's why the land of milk and honey is not here. There's an opening for it. Obviously, we're sort of on one mind on this issue in, the, in, in this room. But there is a, I think you were critical in that, that piece about patriotism recently, of the kind of the AC grailing tendency, mm. the cancel Brexit, the dangers of, uh, of, of sort of denying democratic will. Yeah. It wasn't so much cancel Brexit I was critical of, but the people who go around saying, oh, well, the referendum wasn't binding. Oh, well, only 
they, they, they lump together the non-voters of the people who voted and say yeah. only 33% yeah. or whatever voted Brexit. We can ignore this. That is hopeless. It is undemocratic. They w- certainly wouldn't say it if the vote had been the other way around. They wouldn't say, oh, well, the decision to stay in the EU wasn't binding, we can still leave. It's an intellectual bad faith. But it's also the only way this is going to change is same with same problem the Democrats have in America of overturning Trump. You've got to split your opponents in two. You've got, on the one hand, the hard right ideologues, you're never going to convert them. On the other, you've got millions and millions of perfectly decent people who voted for people or positions you don't like and you've got to try to convert them. You cannot possibly convert them if you say, we don't count your votes. We don't even recognise what you did in June was valid. They'll just get the huff and go. <clears throat> There's always that sort of sense of you've got to have fair play at this point. And you're right, that, you know, the stuff about saying it's advisory, it's cheating. Yeah. And the stuff that's saying, you know, well, well, you haven't counted the non-voters. I mean, it's not like in a general election anyone counts them either. That's also cheating. In some senses, everyone in this room... We voted Remain, well, OK, we lost. It's the people who voted Leave who matter. The people who voted Leave, you have to convert. And you're not going to convert them. Or the people who didn't vote. Or, yeah. You're not going to convert them by saying, we don't even count your vote because we didn't like it. Yeah, we're not going to convert them by saying you're all racist because leaving everything else aside, it's not true. Uh, you know, you convert them by having a civilised argument. Where do you come on this sort of emotion, rationality thing? The thing that's often sort of held up against people like me that have been banging on about, you know, the trade or whatever, is, well, fine, but you don't want to debate that way. And, you know, the, 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 the sort of leave that you guys loved it when we, people were trying to refute them, they just said, well, this is a fundamentally emotional debate that we're having about identity, as you sort of alluded to with the stuff around the culture war. It's just... I, it seems to me like that must be true, but then the only answer to that is to wade into a culture war, and that seems dangerous in and of itself. Well, uh, it's, it's horses for courses in. But, I mean, one point about um, boring, complicated facts is sooner or later you have to live with them. A colleague was saying to me that Dominic Cummings of the Leave campaign knew the 350 million figure a week... Uh, was a lie, but he wanted to put the lie out there because then people would stand up and start saying, well, but that's not true, the Office of National Statistics or do you take this down and all that because then the debate was all, all where he wanted it to be. He didn't mm. care that he was being exposed as a charlatan. Uh, he just wanted the emotional debate because we still do, we still did give, in the narrow sense, more money to the EU than we got back if we exclude all the trade and everything. So he wants it there. He wants on the emotional thing of foreigners taking the money. On the other hand, you know, that will be on Boris Johnson's gravestone. It will be on Michael Gove's gravestone. It is just a brass-necked political lie. So what you've got to do is keep emphasising now where extraordinarily we were just getting out of the 2008 crash. You know, working people were just about seeing real wage increases. First time since 2005, actually, because it started before the crash. Mm. And then bloody Brexit comes along, the pound's sinks through the floor, inflation goes up, particularly food inflation, which hit the poorest hardest because, you know, centigrade portion of their budget on food. It might be boring, it might be factual, it might be very emotional to say, Brexit has done this to you. And actually, you can get quite emotional about it. You can get quite angry about it. So, yeah. you know, we're in a different world from the world of a referendum. We're in a world where the people who bought this have got to be held to account. And one thing that worries me about the Labour Party is that it's pathetic at holding to account. It should be hammered home, hammered home every day. David Davis got away in the Commons, or said in the Commons the other day, I never promised that Brexit would be easy. Yes, he did. <laughs> like literally those <laughs> yeah, words. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, yes, he did. <laughs> and, and, and because the Labour Party is such a shambles, normally, you know, before Corbyn, You've had, the, you've had the Labour Party on to you say, right, Nick, I've got 50 quotes of David Davis saying be, uh, Brexit will be easy. Do you want them? We're giving them to everyone. You're nothing like that. There's no kind of proper oppositional fight back against this. Um, but still, it's got to be done. Well, we're going to talk a bit more about how this affects the, the parties uh, after a quick commercial break from Peter. Yes, um, pot noodle. It's the ideal snack for a working newspaper <laughs> column. No, no, no. Wrong script. Life isn't all about cheap flags and trade deficits. It only feels like it. There's also music, films, books and television. Our sibling podcast, Big Mouth, is the pop culture talk show that asks some of Britain's best writers to weigh up the most interesting new releases. There's a new episode every Saturday morning. This week, the team are discussing, among other things, the new 
new mega box set of David Bowie's Berlin period albums. You can find Big Mouth at audioboom.com slash channel slash Big Mouth. It's the great escape. So we, we were just talking about Labour there, and Ian, I think, suggested the other week that the secret to the kind of Labour position in Europe, that there, were, there were kind of two things. One was that it was largely about domestic political strategy. Two, that Corbyn is not a hardcore Eurosceptic and doesn't actually just care that much and has other kind of issues on his plate that, that he would rather concentrate on. How do you explain kind of Labour's position at the moment? Dear God. Um, right. Corbyn Corb- and McDonnell. No one talks about McDonnell. He seems to sort of disappear, so it seems to have locked him in the cellar for the time being. And they are. They are anti-you, anti but they're sort of anti-everything. So uh, Ian's right in the sense of if you go back through the Morning Star and Socialist Worker, you know, these are papers that best reflect Corbyn and McDonnell's views. They're anti-EU because they're just, you know, they're marxist Leninists, they're anti-everything. Western, but it's not. It's not. A, it's not a huge cause for them. Mm. It's not like trade union rights or Chavez is Venezuela or Cuba or whatever. But they just are. Of course, anti you. So there's that. I mean, the poor old dear doesn't seem to understand it. Uh, he keeps Corbyn keeps saying uh, we can remain a member of the single market. Uh, you can't be a single member of the single market if you leave the EU. Yes, you can. Always. The real problem is this. Theresa May should not be Prime Minister. She is so weak. You have Liam Fox, who, by any standards in politics, is a minister waiting to be exposed. Boris Johnson again. David Davis, who I've got far more time for, but again, everything he sold the public is turning out not to be true. But you have this paradox of because of the Corbyn McDonald leadership, they're not being attacked. I mean, Keir Starmer's doing his best and made some important changes maybe you want to talk about. But one of the staggering things is you have Corbyn take over the Labour Party in 2015 and, and they say, and you think to them the worst thing in the world is a Tory. They accuse everyone of being a Tory. You know, anyone who disagrees with on the left is a red Tory or you're doing the Tories. Well, when it comes to fighting actual Tories, they're hopeless at it. They don't do it at all. Not a single minister has been forced out of office by an opposition campaign or attack since 2015. Now, you go back to the 1990s when Blair and Smith were laying into John Major's government, or from 1997 to 2010 when opposition, opposition were very successful at, say, driving la- Labour Home Secretaries out. David Davis used to do it almost yearly. <laughs> they don't know how to do it. So whatever else Boris Johnson or Liam Fox are worried about, whatever else is keeping up at night... It is not the fact that Emily Formbury is going to just destroy them in the Commons and make their position untenable. So it's almost like they go on on about Blairites and things like that. They have triangulated with the Tories on Brexit, you know, in a way Tony Blair hasn't. There isn't the energy, the anger, the vigour, uh, the hard work being done to expose what is happening to the country. Well, if you say, I mean, the sort of the case against the current leadership is, you know, on, on this on this issue is one this sort of like lack of kind of parliamentary street fighting yeah. nows, which matters. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, particularly particularly if you sold yourself to Labour Party members of we will take the fight to the Tories, unlike mm. these horrible centrist compromisers, they can't fight the Tories at all. Um, and and moreover, have ideological and cynical reasons for not wanting to do it, not wanting to fight them. But given that you were saying that a large part of Brexit was this sort of anti-elitist moment, given Labour's unexpectedly strong performance in the election, do you think that a alternative Labour leader from that was associated with, you know, the old guard was associated with elites? They might be better at, like you said, kind of messaging, sending things out to journalists, uh, putting pressure on ministers. But do you think that they would be doing better with the public at this particularly sort well, of volatile moment? Because it is wider than Corbyn and McDonnell. It is far wider. Uh, I think you or Ian mentioned Caroline Flint. There are a lot of Northern and Midland MPs who just are frightened. They're frightened that if they, if they have an argument with their constituents about this, they could lose their seats. So they are not kicking up a fuss. Often people from the right of the party. So Labour is in some sense just scared. It did very well at the election by appearing to be an anti-Brexit party in London and Oxford and Cambridge and Brighton and a pro-Brexit party in the Yorkshire Milltowns. 
how it might get away with it politically. I mean, you can see that. I mean, I think it's in more difficulty because if Theresa, Theresa May had a majority, all the focus would be on her. Because she has no majority, there is focus, there is focus on Labour. But what it means is that Yorkshire MPs, uh, Lancashire MPs, Welsh and Midlands MPs are not going to talk to their constituents about this. Uh, they're not going to point out how their constituents have been misled. They're not going to point out how this is going to go wrong. They're not going to be politically brave, in other words, which is why I was saying to Ian earlier in the uh, uh, podcast show, events, extravaganza, whatever you want to call this, <laughs> that actually the Tories, there's going to be, be quite substantial Tory rebellions to, to get things through. So politically, because of the triangulation Corbyn has tried to do with the Tories on so much, and because of his lack of interest... That is not just a problem with the far-left leadership of the Labour Party. It goes way, way beyond into working MPs for working-class constituencies all over yeah. Britain. Out of interest, what do you think a sort of more centre-left leadership of the Labour Party would have done in this sort of scenario? Like if it had been Liz Kendall that had won or if it was still Ed Miliband? Or well, I think they would still have had problems. But here's my difficulty with the way they're behaving. One way or another, this argument is going to be sorted out by the spring. Mm. Uh, if the economy is in dire straits at the spring, I've, I think the political situation will look very different. How can Labour, perhaps with Keir Starmer, perhaps being tactically clever by allowing Keir Starmer to at least wave a quavering voice and make the odd oppositional point, you know, and, uh, uh, and Labour could benefit from that. But the fact that the Labour Party has been such a mess, and is, to be fair to it, hugely divided within itself, as divided as the Tory party, possibly more so, Again, it does leave the space I was talking to you earlier for a far right wing stag in the bat myth to gain currency because it's not. You watch Prime Minister's questions and you see Theresa May, I mean, just a crippled Prime Minister, a Prime Minister, you know, who shouldn't be there. You see the government, a great international crisis for Britain, as big as Suez, I would say, certainly. And the leader of the opposition never asks a question on it. Now, you couldn't imagine Hugh Gateskill in 1956 confronted with anti-Eden's lies about Suez, saying, you know what, I'm going to ask about Social Security or council house building. <laughs> you know, I mean, in politics, it might not be the agenda Corbyn wants to talk about. He wants to talk about reasoning of wealth and benefits. And good, actually, I'm glad he is. But, you know, in politics, you have to deal with what's in front of you. The idea that you can be clever and sort of avoid this or just let Keir do a bit there, I don't buy that. Well, do you think, because, I mean, so much of it does seem to have been delegated to, to Keir Starmer and he seems to have got, he seemed to get kind of a good change of policy or a yeah, clarification agree, of policy. Yeah. Is he, are you, are, you, are you impressed? Do you think he's the right man in that I'm, position? I, I am impressed and I'm impressed by, by what you don't see as well. I'm sure he had to do an awful lot of politicking to get... Labour to once again, you know, actually behave like an opposition and not the red Tories they are under Corbyn. I guess, can you please keep that in? I guess one sense again and again and again. But that's not the same as an opposition when presented with huge open goals. I mean, you don't even have to say we reject Brexit to start pulling apart how the public, including your own constituents, were lied to. All we're getting at the moment is, is some waffle about a pro-jobs Brexit. I mean, colleague of mine on The Guardian said yesterday, but Brexit, Brexit is going to mean lots of jobs are lost. What is a pro-jobs Brexit? It doesn't exist. You have to be clever politically. They're in a very difficult position, the Labour Party, and that would have been the case whoever was leader. Mm. But because they're not smart, because they're not concentrated on the national crisis, then it's worse than it would have been under any other leader. It's funny, I think almost the, the most effective word they could have in the way that they approach Brexit is the word shambles. Huh. It doesn't need to be Brexit's a bad idea in and of itself. Just saying you've made an absolute shambles of this. The manner the Tories have done it has been completely cack-handed and inept. And that seems to me to be pretty powerful in a way of sort of dodging an awful lot of the yeah. dangers that yeah, they well, have. I mean, if, if you think yeah. one of the problems Labour had, and it, yeah, it still has, particularly with John McDonnell, is you're just incompetent. You know, it's not ideological left right we don't care about this we can't trust you to manage the country to manage the shop well exactly <laughs> look at what look at what the mayor administration is doing i mean again that's not being hammered home this is a reminder it seems to have been forgotten by a lot of 
Corbynites after the election that actually he's not very good as a leader. No. That hasn't gone away, has it? Oh, you went there. Also, 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 also Dorian, <laughs> also, Dorian, to go back to your point, and I think this is an important argument to make. You said, ah, oh, but the country is against the elites. Yeah, but who is the elite now? The, the Brexiteers are the elite. They're in control. They have the power. Now, I know societies have multiple elites, but if the people in power want to pretend we're not the elite, I mean, there's no elite in political history that hasn't had control of political power. They are in control now. They must be answerable. I mean, Trump uses the same language in America. Hold on a second. You're president, and Republicans control the House, the Senate, and all the Supreme Court nominations. But Saturday you Night are, Live you, is the elite. You are. You are the elite now. So what, what is being missed is the ability to turn anti-elitist rhetoric on the new elite, and what has been missed is the far older parliamentary and journalistic duty of holding them to account, because they are in power. What else are you meant to do with them apart from holding them to account? Well, well finally, along with sort of pretty much every other political columnist, and I think every, everyone in this room, you, you underestimated Corbyn's pull at the ballot box uh, this time. Do you think he'll make it to number 10 next time? Uh, I, ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, he could. I, I mean, for the very reason we, we were just talking about, because this government is such a mess because it's embarked on a political project of Brexit which is doomed to fail. Well, which I mean, it doesn't mean we won't leave the European Union. We will, as things stand, but it will be, it will just be a national disaster and will be seen as such. And because it is a national disaster, it will pull apart the Tory party. More than the Labour Party, even though it's vigilance in the Labour Party, is just as great, they are in opposition. Mm. So it, there's not the same pressure on them. So that could be fun. We could have Brexit followed by John McDonald's to answer the exchequer. <laughs> buy gold and ammunition, I say. <laughs> Onwards. Finally, I went on the People's March for Europe on Saturday along with Peter, Ros Taylor, our producer Matt, and some children, because I believe that children are our future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. Uh, if you missed it, there's a mini podcast uh, with interviews from the march, including Labour MEP Seb Dance. And that's on our usual podcast feed. And that's the end of the show. Thanks to Ian and Peter, as always, and to our special guest, Nick Cohen. Nick, what are you working on at the moment? Are you, are you still deep in the Brexit trenches? Or are you... I'm trying to write a book, uh, but not about this. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to write, I'm trying to, well, sort of about this. I'm trying to find a way of writing about the cynicism of populism, about elitists using the language of re revolution and anti-elitism, and find a way to put that all together. I'm a long way from getting there. But, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. I, I'm on the journey, as I believe they say these days in the media. Remember, you, you can hear this podcast and all of our back catalogue at audioboom.com slash channel slash Romaniacs dash podcast. And you can find links to all the places you can hear the show at Romaniacs.com. And this week's sign-off is in Italian. It comes from listener Adam Steinart. Ciao a tutti. Ci vediamo settimana prossima. Butiamo Boris Johnson nel Mediterraneo. Tweet us your translations, and we'll see you next week when our guest will be Romaniac's Hall of Famer, Gina Miller. <laughs>